Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I'm Randy, and today's guest is Chuck Johnson. Now, Chuck is the CMO at Finio Software, and he got to this point with a big focus on insurance. Actually, I hit on it in the podcast that he told me that he's a guy who loved insurance who ended up being a marketer or ended up in insurance and just kept going down that path. And I think it's a real interesting opportunity to listen in and understand how you can take that type of focus and take it all the way to that CMO opportunity. The exciting thing as well is is how he's evolved his strategy to make sense in this day of modern marketing. The second half of our chat is all about account-based marketing. We get there by a focus on aligning between product marketing and sales and figuring out what do you need to close a deal. And the reality is Chuck talks about is it's all about ABM, which is ultimately about personalizing the experience for the buyer at the right time with many buyers weighing in at different times. So this is a great podcast if you're trying to figure out how to take a vertical approach or if you're trying to understand a better way to put ABM into practice. Here's my chat with Chuck Johnson. Hey Chuck, thank you so much for finding time to chat about everything, including your career. And I think on the surface, the question I've got for you, partly after our conversation earlier today, is are you a guy who loves marketing or a guy who loves insurance? Yes, um, <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, I started out in the insurance industry. I'm not a guy who went to college and said, I'm going to be a marketer. In fact, the guy who went to University of Connecticut back in the early 80s would probably be shocked at what I'm doing right now. Um, I was focusing on engineering back in those days. I actually graduated with a degree of industrial psychology, um, lived in the greater Hartford, Connecticut area. So I ended up finding out when you have a degree in psychology, you're probably not going to do that for a living. So you had two choices in those days if you lived in Connecticut. You either worked for an insurance company or you built jet engines. Um, I got sucked into the insurance company world at a you know fairly early age of my career. And that's really where I got my start. Um, so it was not in a marketing role. It was in originally an actuarial role. I'm not an actuary. I'm, I'm more interesting than that in general. <laughs> guys out there. Uh, but I was in kind of the systems area for insurance company, grew up there, ended up doing um, business, moved over the lines of business there and, um, and was there for about 14 years, actually doing various things around IT and business in an insurance company. Um, none of it was marketing at the time. So what was it about marketing that, that lured you in? What was it that said to you, you know, and I'm not going to go on the sales side specifically. I'm not going to get into the operations as you kind of hit on there. What was it about, you know, taking the product to market? Well, what ended up happening to me, and it's, some of it is a journey. I wish I could say I planned it out, but I guess life happened to me to some extent because I ended up leaving the insurance company and I got sucked into an analyst firm. I ended up working for an organization called Metagroup, which is now part of Gartner, if you're familiar with Gartner. Absolutely. And I ended up running the insurance practice for them. And it was a combination of you know, technology and a little bit of the e-business. This was around 1999, 2000, 2001, where everybody was trying to figure out e-business. And my customer base was kind of a mixture of insurance companies and an awful lot of software vendors. 
So I spent a lot of time with product marketing and marketing people for various software vendors over the years. Suddenly realized that it was an area that really interested me. How do you take the technology that I used to build in my, in my younger days and how do you take it to market? So as that market of analysts started to contract, my company was actually bought by Gartner. And I decided I didn't really want to be part of that organization just because it's a great organization. It's just much larger. I got a phone call from a software company who said, hey, aren't you, you, you work for Metagroup and you're the world-class expert in insurance agent compensation software, which you're an analyst. You kind of, all of a sudden people say, you're the expert in something. You say, yeah, I'm an expert at the six square feet in my backyard. It's very small, okay. but that's what they did. I went to a company called Calidus, which is now actually part of SAP. And they were doing um, insurance compensation software. And they'd won some major customers and said, look, we need somebody to come in and we're going to put you in product marketing because you understand the concepts. You can talk to the customers. You can work with our message. And I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Um, how do you spell that? Because right. uh, they're really looking for an industry expert. The insurance industry is very, very good at sniffing out whether you, you kind of know what you're talking about. So I got my start in marketing really through product marketing, working for Calidus and then several other West Coast companies. Absolutely. And, and some of those companies have amazing reputations and you really seem to have zoned in on that insurance segment for them, which is highly lucrative for software companies. So as, as you hit on SAP for, for a little bit, a couple of years there, and then moved on to a great stint at Oracle on their software side, again, a big focus on the insurance industry. So how do you kind of advise others who want to get into technology, who want to get into marketing to leverage this focus that they have in an, in an area, in a segment like insurance? Well, I think it's important if I look at my team now and what makes me successful. When I was at Oracle, I pretty much had a, a, a pretty good primer on all things marketing. Um, Oracle's a great marketing organization, um, great processes and so forth. So the things I didn't learn earlier on in product marketing, like just operational marketing, lead gen, all that kind of stuff, I got to really understand that there's probably two pathways to come into this. One is be the industry expert, whether it be in insurance or retail or whatever it may be, that is one path and you can learn your marketing along the way. But there's also a lot of room for people who are experts in marketing process. And, and this is important because a lot of the companies I compete with, they take people like myself who grew up in the industry and say, okay, you're going to do marketing now. And they send somebody to a 12-week pragmatic marketing course or something and say, go at it. And then they're just like, okay, well, I guess I'll do some events and I'll do some things. I think, though, what's really important for anybody who's entering this market, if you can find a niche that makes sense to you, it oftentimes can really make you more valuable than someone who's a quote-unquote generic marketer. But having said that, anybody who develops an excellence in any of these skills um, can be great. My head of marketing, who worries about the demand gen side of my business and, um, and you know, content creation, she came out of Accenture and worked for Semantic and a bunch of other companies. And she's great. And she's learning the industry piece. But I have to partner her with people who are experts. And, and you know, from for some perspective on on the size of Finio's uh, for people listening in here, it's, it's a company that's got revenues well over a hundred million uh, in Australian dollars, I should say. So just around a hundred million in, in U.S. dollars. It IPO'd this past year after some twenty-five years, and you know you're you're a thousand employees after an acquisition, but a pretty lean marketing team. So 
you talked about this idea of, of pairing the right people. How much of the next hire you go, how often do you go to find an industry expert versus the marketer? Like what's your go-to as you're building a team now? Well, and again, it always depends upon you know where you're going at that point. One of the, honestly, my next hire will probably be an expert in trying to sort out events in this new crazy world that we're playing within. Because we pulled our goalie last year and said, why would I need an event person given that everyone's you know locked down? And now we're dealing with digital events. I think it it, it really is is an interesting mix. But on the, what I would call the demand gen and the operational set of marketing, I'm hiring experts who are willing to learn enough to not, you know, not have a problem with the industry. It's in product marketing that I really tend to look for people who have deep expertise. Um, and not that we don't have expertise in the product marketing discipline, but those are the people that are mostly interfacing directly with the customers, the analysts, the SIs that we need to work with, the systems integrators. They're, they're kind of, while they're doing product marketing, they're also, there's an element in my subsegment, they tend to do a fair amount of business development in some way, shape or form. Gotcha. We're going to go deeper on this, but I think we're going to take a short break here. Listen to one of our sponsors talk for a bit, and then we'll be back to understand a little bit more about your go-to-market on that segmentation, on understanding how to really embrace this vertical approach right here on The Marketer's Journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. I would say almost every week I get an outreach from a marketer saying, I want to get into tech. I want to change my career down a different path, looking for advice of how to get in. And one of the things I think we can learn in talking to Chuck is how he was able to use his understanding of an industry very specific outside of tech and allow that to leverage it into technology. Now, don't get me wrong, he managed to do this at a very early time when there was very little tech out there, but he had knowledge in an industry that was in very high demand. I think today that's perhaps even easier. Now, and some of us may say, well, it's really hard to get into these companies, but a lot of companies are looking for experts. At Uberflip, as an example, we're always looking for marketers who understand marketing and want different roles, whether it's on our marketing team or perhaps in our customer success team. I think there's different businesses out there that will value the industry knowledge you have. And it's a great way to break in to a different career trajectory that may even have a tech swing to it. All right, Chuck, so we understand now that you're in a very specialized space where it helps to have context, helps to have marketers who know what they're talking about. You're also getting away with a pretty lean team. I mean, over a thousand employees now and roughly 10 marketers, heavy focus on product marketing. So how much does each of those product marketers need to own from a knowledge perspective and a go-to-market perspective? 
Randy, more than that, more than they should have to. Quite honestly, we are, and to be fair, I mean we're lean, but we are on an upgrowth curve. Just just to be clear, we realize people are stretching, and I'm also very fortunate because our head of product management, who's one of my peers, and I, we've had a long term relationship. As you said, I've been here for six years. We do lean on product managers um, throughout the globe because we do have some in Ireland and some in Australia, New Zealand, um, and they also lean on us sometimes. I still occasionally even find myself helping with a billing spec or something just because it's that kind of an organization. One, one of the things that's really important for us is segmenting the exact markets by a line of business perspective, and then we have to add the global dimension. So for example, in North America, my customers are life accident and health insurance companies, not property casualty or general insurance as they call it globally, uh, but the life accident and health players. And right now we're very focused on employee benefits. So our customers are the large players who do disability, life insurance uh, as part of an employee benefit, all of those other benefits, critical illness, and all this other very, all the things you look at after you do your annual benefits and you spend like 30 minutes of your time looking at the health carriers and figuring out which health plan do I want. And then you spend four minutes saying, yeah, I want disability, I want, I want dental, I want all the other stuff. The guys who play in that market. Now that's about a $1.5 trillion market globally, just for that one, one segment of LA and H. And I know I'm getting a little boring here, but realistically in, in my market, most of the money, most of the revenue in that market is done by 120 companies in North America. Um, now there's several thousand, but it quickly drops down. I think around 120 or so, you're gone from companies that are 20, 20 you know, billion dollars of revenue down to under a billion. So for us, when we segment our markets, we're, one, we're, again, very focused on a very particular set of products serving a particular market. And we're also segmenting it by size. So for the top, let's say, 80 or 90 that I really, really focus on in North America, the companies that we want to be sure we're messaging very strongly to, marketing very strongly to, and selling, I can effectively take an account-based marketing approach as opposed to um, a more general approach. And then down market, we take a very different approach where it's more, um, more general. I apologize, I'm an army brat. So I would, I would say, you know, down market, we're basically carpet bombing in a nice way with no, <laughs> whereas, you know, up market, it's really very close air support for the sales teams to the point where, um, to give you an example, we were just working on a segmented plan for a particular set of companies. And there's about 15 companies in there and we're literally saying, okay, there's 15 companies by about probably seven or eight roles. We can write them on a whiteboard. So for the perspective of those kinds of markets, it's very much about making connections, particularly in this world now where we're very um, you know, video focused and we can't just you know, show up at a, uh, a show and have a beer. Um, it's very focused on making those connections and then putting the right content in front of people. Content marketing has its ups and downs. By the way, thank you for the book. I'm, I, uh, I've got a call a friend of mine. She's the head of uh, content for uh, Sirius, and I'm going. She and I are going to have a, crack, uh, a joke about that. But you can see that you know, content content by itself isn't enough. It's understanding the journey. So one of the things that we're very focused on right now is where is somebody in their role, and what do they care about, and what are the th where's the information they get, but also where are they in the journey. Of, of buying from us or in the, I shouldn't say that, in the process of them understanding what they need and how they're going to get there. So for that segment, we're very, very focused on finding John Smith and where is he and what is he thinking and, and what is he reading? Whereas down market, it, it really is more, more you know, traditional 
uh, email, lots of webinars, LinkedIn, things of that nature. Um, it also varies by region, where the way we approach North America is very different than when we approached Australia and New Zealand, which is a mix of commercial companies like in North America, but a fair number of government and NGO organizations that are more social insurance. So we have to be aware of all these nuances. And that's why we also lean on regional people in the product management organization to help us to be sure we got our, you know, our USPs and all that other kind of stuff lined up appropriately. That's great. And every, everything you just outlined there, I, I mean, speaks so, so accurately to what account-based marketing is all about. And I think also gives perspective to a lot of people listening in on this, that ABM isn't just this thing that new upstarts are, are you know, jumping into. As you said, Phineos has been around for 25 years and you are very much on the up and up, I think, because of this strategy. When you think about that alignment between sales and marketing, who is really the one who's highlighting the right content to the right buyer at the right time as you as you talk to there? I mean, when we put that in the hand of salespeople, we sometimes get the wrong content at the door. Is that on the product marketer or is that on other individuals in your marketing org? It's, it's moved over the years depending upon who my head of sales partner is in the region. Um, I've dealt with a few who are basically just, you know, give, give me the give me the paper and I'll hand it to them and don't worry, stay out of my deal. I don't find them to be very successful over time. I do think it's the salespeople who are acting as the quarterback and are saying, I'm going to figure out how to sell this. But my expectation is I'm going to bring in product marketing and subject matter experts to actually make me make the deal work um, are the ones that are successful. And usually what ends up happening is there's a partnership. Because the product marketing people, particularly with a lean team, can't be in every deal. But what they can do is they can be available to a salesperson who's effective in listening. And one of the things we're spending a lot of energy on right now, um, among not only competitive intelligence, but battle cards, materials to help with things like what questions to listen for, keywords, things of that nature. Fortunately, our sales teams tend to be fairly experienced. They've been working in this industry for a while. Just like with um, marketing, this is an industry where a lot of the salespeople tend to stay within the vertical. So let's take as an example, hypothetically, uh, if you had a salesperson who put up their hand and said, we're, we're at this stage with a buyer and we need a piece of content, in theory, they would relay that to the product marketer in your org. Who does the product marketer go to ensure that you either have that asset or it gets created. And there's only so much that you know, I think most of us expect we can ask about. Well, and, and it's a good question because we do have a fair amount of content that's available and product marketing is actually responsible for a certain class of content. So obviously the thought leadership pieces and things of that nature. Um, I probably spend more of my time as a practitioner on the product marketing side, particularly around content and messaging. Um, so they're generally totally aware of what's there and what needs to be, needs to be created. Um, we do have, uh, as part of the um, the person who runs my marketing team in general, we do have a team of, of, of a few people who are copywriters um, and also just understand how to push content. We use a lot of third parties. We're small. So we, we, we are the masters of you know outsourcing to some extent. And we have some good organizations that do that, some of whom are general and some of whom are very specific to our industry as well. We're kind of our own little weird little community in some ways. Uh, but generally what would end up happening is the salesperson, it wasn't straightforward for the salesperson. They would go to the product marketing lead and say, can you help me out with this? What's the right thing to say? I'm at this stage. You know, we've just did an acquisition. We picked up some great salespeople and I'm getting some direct requests just because in the heat of the acquisition, they don't always know where to go. And I'm like, oh, cool. We have that. 
and you know go pull it from this part of the website and sometimes it's yeah you know maybe the right thing to do is connect with dan and maybe you and he and the customer can have a have a discussion because not all content has to be tangible and that's something we're struggling with right now is how much of it is the old data sheet and how much of it is getting the right person to talk to someone for 20 minutes Absolutely. I mean, you've been at this for six years at Finneos alone. Uh, you talked about, you know, being in this industry in the 80s, I believe. When do you think this shift to ABM really took off inside of your organization? Is this over the last year? Is this, you know, a progression over a number of years? When have you seen things kind of click? Well, it's, it's interesting because ABM, as we know it, very recently, is something we've really kind of doubled down, down on. Um, in the last couple of years. And the reason why is we were a one, one product company for a very long time. We were, we were the leader in um, LANH claims globally, which is a great market, but it is only one market. We've since added multiple products. And the complexity of what we sell and how we sell it and what the messaging on has increased geometrically. Now, ABM, for a lot of companies that have grown up from a founder-based company, and, and Michael Kelly, my boss, is a CEO, is the founder of this company, still major shareholder, I would argue he grew up doing ABM. He's, his superpower is he's a relationship guy. And his focus is knowing people, understanding that. And many, I think what's interesting for me about ABM, if I take a step back and put my analyst hat on for a second, good founders of software companies naturally have this idea of, I want to get this account and I want to go work with a Hartford and I want to do this and that. As they grow and they start to really institutionalize marketing and go to market, some of that gets lost because you, you you have to be able to scale. And what you have to be able to do, and a lot of times people fall into a mass marketing, I'm going to go you know, send out bunches of emails. And I lived that at Oracle, which was a massive organization. And you know, the joke was you better get your, you better get your email out because the train leaves once a week for you because they sent so much stuff to everybody. Whereas I think here, you know, ABM is a way of keeping that personal touch to say, I know the, you know, the, the CIO of Cigna is a friend of mine and I can call him up and Matt and I can have a discussion. The question is, how do you scale that? So we've kind of come back to ABM, but I think it, it actually in some ways grew out of the fact that you built strong relationships because most of our deals tend to be large deals. So you have those relationships. Great advice. Chuck, thank you so much for sharing. We're going to keep you around for one short other segment right after a quick break here on The Marketer's Journey. Chatting with Chuck, there is no question that ABM is on the rise. Not just on the rise, it's become really the cornerstone of so many go-to-market strategies. And as Chuck outlines, this is something that's been evolving. I mean, they've double-clicked, as he put it, on it in recent years. But you can understand when you look at his market with roughly, I believe he says, 120 buyers in North America that they want to focus on, it makes sense to get personalized. It makes sense to show each of those buyers that you know what they're looking for. One of the things that he hits on is the importance of content and having the right content for the right buyer at the right time. There's nothing worse for us when we're going through the web and suppose that you see an ad that's following you online or you get retargeted with an email because you're part of someone's database at that point. And as personalized as that ad or email may be, if we click through and we don't see that same degree of personalized content, it's a huge letdown. It doesn't meet that same expectation that that company began to show. So that's where I think ABM continues to evolve. And you hear Chuck talk about this. It's not enough to have all that content. 
we can't expect our buyers to go sifting through our website to find the right assets that you may have for them. We have to start to tee up that content, the right content to the right buyer at the right time. That's a big part of an ABM strategy. It's about that engagement element that a lot of us are starting to turn to as ABM is, continues to become a cornerstone. So Chuck, we've unpacked your career. We've talked about the importance of ABM to your buyer journey. How do you find time to disconnect? And I know for you, you've been working from home, you know, far beyond when the pandemic hit, but you know, how has this shifted the way you prioritize personal time? It's a it's an important question because having worked from home forever, I've had to work out a lot of procedures. My wife and I have been uh, together for a very long time. Not, not that she's very old, just to get married. <laughs> Um, and one of the things that we needed to work out was how do you unplug when you work when you work out of the office? And I've been doing that, as I said, for well over 20 years. A lot of it is I, is discipline. I like what I do. And I also love to play on the computer to do other things, which tends to suck you back to work. So I have some serious rules. I turn the machines off. I've actually started taking up more of the lawn care away from the guy who came, came and did it. I used to outsource it all when I traveled because I wasn't reliable. But now I'm out there trimming bushes trying to lose the, the paunch a little bit there and get a little bit more exercise, walk the dogs. And, and really, it's it's just a matter of, of, of discipline. I'm fortunate. Five years ago, we moved from Connecticut, which is a wonderful place, to Florida. So I have a pool I should be swimming in. I have the opportunity to do a lot of things. And I have to remind myself that, and, and I joke with my team, if I work too much, I'm not the really sweet guy you're talking to right now. I can get quite grumpy. And um, I think we all have to do it for each other because there's so much work to do and it's often exciting work and you want to finish it, but you've got to remember there is another day. I mean, one last comment on that. I was really fortunate when I joined Finios. I was gunslinging there for a while. I was at Oracle. I was at Salent. I was at a few different places. I joined Finios. I figured I'd be here for two years to kind of help get them on the track with some new products and probably go do something else. It's, it's a European company and the mindset is rather European. It's do take your vacations. CEO will not call you unless the building's on fire. Um, there's a very strong sense of work-life balance from a European perspective. And it's really good for me. And I think it's it's something we all ought to take to heart a little bit that, you know, when you're on holiday, you're on holiday and your people will take care of it. And if they really need to reach you. They'll text you. So stop looking at your email. And that's been very helpful for me. I can't, obviously I can't share it with everybody, but for me, that's been valuable. That's great advice. Uh, I can't thank you enough for that. One last rapid fire question for you. What kind of dogs? You hit on the dogs. People are all curious what kind of dogs now. Uh, we have a pointer and we have a golden mix. And sometimes you'll see them in the back corner. Um, <laughs> a, a, a feature of, of some of my um, Zoom calls. There you go. There you go. Uh, Chuck, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing. If you've stumbled upon this podcast with Chuck for your first time on The Marketer's Journey, tune in and check out all the other episodes we've got. You can find them on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google, anywhere you get your podcasts. Let us know. And hopefully at one point, you'll be sharing your journey on here as well. Until next time, big thank you to Chuck Johnson. And this has been The Marketer's Journey. 
You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 